Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In the early morning of April 26, 1871, Officer Donald Gunn was wrapping up his night shift, but he still had one more round left to go, through a quaint London suburb called Eltham. Gunn knew this particular stretch of Kidbrook Lane well. The road was quiet and calm at this hour, but it also had a sense of eeriness. Usually, that unsettling feeling was part of the charm, but not that night. As Gunn held his lantern out, the light landed on a mass of brown and black fabric a hundred yards in front of him. Slowly, he realized he had stumbled across the body of a young woman. Officer Gunn watched in shock as the girl lifted her arm for attention and moaned in pain. The woman faced him, deep gashes sliced across her face. Her left cheek was cut wide open. Her right eye was missing, and the gaping hole revealed the frontal lobe of her brain. Gunn reached out to the battered woman, but she was too weak to take his hand. She fell face first onto the ground, and Gunn tried to lift her back up. But as he wrestled with her limp body in the dirt, Gunn heard the woman whisper her final words. Let me die. This is Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's episode is about the mysterious death of 17-year-old Jane Clausen, a British servant employed by the wealthy Pook family. We'll look at how Jane ended up working for the Pooks in the first place and how the supposedly respectable family may have played a part in her death. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Jane Maria Clausen was born in 1854 to a working-class family in a small town outside of London, England. 
Her father, James, was a steamship worker while her mother stayed home and tended to Jane and her two sisters. Those who knew the family saw the image of domestic bliss, but behind the scenes, Jane's childhood was marred by tragedy. In 1863, her oldest sister, Sarah, died from tuberculosis. Less than four years later, her mother met the same fate. Jane's father was so traumatized by the loss of his daughter and his wife that he deserted what remained of his family and moved away to start a new life. In 1866, with no one else to turn to, 12-year-old Jane went to live with her aunt Elizabeth and Elizabeth's husband, William Trott. The Trotts accepted Jane as if she was one of their own, and she immediately forged a close friendship with her cousin, Charlotte. With her new surrogate family supporting her, Jane entered the workforce before she even became a teenager. She proved herself to be a diligent worker in butcher shops and as a domestic worker in the homes of the wealthy. Eventually, she sought a more conventional line of work as a servant, or as it was known at the time, a maid-of-all-work. This catch-all position required Jane to be responsible for the combined duties of a housekeeper, caretaker, cook, and everything in between. The work was grueling, but it was what society expected of her. So in 1869, Jane began her employment as a live-in servant at 3 London Street. Her employers were the Pooks, a respectable middle-class family of four. Ebenezer, the family patriarch, owned a print shop that was on the ground floor of the Pook's three-story home. His two sons, Thomas and Edmund, worked at the shop while his wife Mary tended to the home during the day. Unfortunately, just because Jane was living in the same home as the family didn't make her a welcome member. It was exactly the opposite. Maids were expected to remain completely separate from the family— Any formal or friendly gestures were grounds for immediate dismissal. Not only that, but if a maid like Jane left a job on bad terms with her former employer, she would likely never find work again. Word spread fast in a town like Eltham. Even knowing that, a girl as outgoing and charismatic as Jane found it difficult to not make friends at her new job, and it made her cousin Charlotte very nervous. Care for another cup, Jane? Oh no, I'm fine. More than fine. Better than I've been in my whole life, perhaps. My goodness, what's come over you? Have you stumbled upon some sort of fortune? Met the heir to the crown? Something like that. But you mustn't judge, and you must not tell. (sighs) Jane, not the pook boy. His name is Edmund Charlotte, and he is the loveliest young man. He sneaks me out, and we go walk down that little footpath by Blackheath. If you ever got caught... Oh, but we never will. That's the beauty of it all. He has it all figured out. My mother is going to lose her head over this. You know that, right? You wouldn't dare tell her! Jane was wrong. Charlotte immediately informed Aunt Elizabeth about Jane's affair with the trot boy. Elizabeth had spent her life as a servant, and she was no stranger to the strict rules of the trade. This teenage fling could be the end of Jane's entire future. Elizabeth cautioned Jane to end the affair, but Jane's mind was made up. She wouldn't listen. 
On April 13, 1871, Jane told her aunt that she had put in her notice at the Pooks and would be leaving the family immediately. Although Elizabeth was relieved that Jane had avoided damaging her reputation by severing ties with the Pook family, she was concerned at how abruptly Jane had come to this decision. Not only was she leaving the Pook family, but the line of work altogether. Jane moved in with a friend and planned to seek factory work. For the next few days, Jane seemed distraught, as if the joy had been completely sucked out of her life. But ten days later, Jane came over to the trots for tea and seemed like an entirely new person. Suddenly, she was her old self again. That evening, Jane invited Charlotte on a stroll down to Greenwich Park. She had a secret to share with her favorite cousin. All right then, out with it. What is the secret? I'm on the edge of my seat. Well, you mustn't worry if I'm not around for some weeks. Edmund and I are moving into the country. The pook boy, Jane, you cannot be serious. Where are you going? Sorry, he told me not to tell anyone. But don't worry, Edmund has it all figured out. I'm to meet him at Shooter's Hill either tomorrow night or on Tuesday night. Listen, Jane, you know Edmund Pook has a reputation for this sort of thing, right? You must be what, the third servant girl that he's had one of these overblown flings with? If only you knew him. If you could only see the way he looked at me, you'd understand. Charlotte was worried about Jane. Something just didn't feel right about Edmund Pook. But the girl refused to listen to a word of it. She believed that Edmund was a good man and he loved her. As it turned out, Charlotte was right to worry. Coming up, Jane Clausen's young life is cut short. Every so often, something so impactful happens, it has the power to capture the attention of a whole country. An event so deadly or dumbfounding, it has no choice but to live on in infamy. Hi, Parcasters. It's Ashley Flowers, and I'm exposing the most sinister cases from the darkest corners of the globe in my new true crime limited series, International Infamy. Every Tuesday, come along as I guide you on a wicked world tour. 15 different countries, 15 infamous crimes. Take a trip to Iceland, where six people confessed to a murder that never actually happened. Journey to Mexico, where a Lucha Libre wrestler moonlights as a serial killer and travel to New Zealand where two friends hatch a deadly plan to become famous. Each episode of International Infamy explores the twists and turns of a notoriously high-profile case, zeroing in on the cultural details which make the crime unique to its location and explaining why it couldn't have happened anywhere else. Follow my new Spotify original from ParCast, International Infamy with Ashley Flowers, and catch a new episode every week. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to our story. In 1871, 17-year-old Jane Clausen quit her job as a servant to the Pook family in London. The change seemed very abrupt, especially since Jane was in the middle of an affair with the Pook's youngest son, Edmund. Jane's friends and family figured that the couple must have had a falling out, but there was more to the story. Jane told her cousin Charlotte that her love for Edmund Pook had never been stronger She was planning to run away with him and start a new life. Unfortunately, Charlotte knew that this only meant trouble. Edmund Pook had a reputation. He had been seen around town with other servants and had a knack for jumping from one to another as soon as he got bored. Charlotte tried to warn Jane, but the girl wouldn't hear it. On April 26, 1871, just days after Jane confided her secret plans to Charlotte, a police officer named Donald Gunn stumbled upon a young woman lying limp on the side of a dirt path. He didn't know it then, but it was Jane Clausen, and she was badly injured. Her skull was broken, her face was cut, her right eye was completely caved in, and it left parts of her brain exposed to the cold morning air. With the help of a few other officers, Gunn hurried Jane's battered body to the nearest hospital. Doctor? I I need a doctor here. What do we have here, officer? Oh, my. Ma'am, ma'am, can you hear me? You're safe in the hospital, ma'am? She was awake when I found her. I I don't know how, with her head like that and and her eye. She even talked. Talking, that's good. That's something. Ma'am. Ma'am, if you can hear me, move your fingers. Can you hear me? She told me. She said I should let her die, but I couldn't. I shouldn't. Listen to me. She'd be dead already if it wasn't for you. Now, let us take it from here. You go on home. You've done all you can do. Nurse! I need a nurse! The doctors did their best to dress her wounds, but there was nothing else the doctors could do. Jane was unconscious. They could only ease her pain and hope she would eventually come out of her coma. As they studied Jane, her injuries painted a picture even more brutal than Officer Gunn had originally thought. She had been savagely beaten, and judging by the dirt patterns on Jane's dress, she had likely fallen to the ground as her attacker continued to pummel her body. With Jane in the hospital... A police sergeant named Frederick Haynes headed to Kidbrook Lane to take a closer look at the crime scene. Word of the attack had already spread. Haynes arrived at the muddy road only to find a sea of townsfolk and other officers milling about, destroying whatever evidence the road may have offered. He did his best to shoo away the crowd, worried that his investigation had been trampled before it could begin. But luckily, some of the footprints from the previous night were still intact. Haynes found multiple uniform footprints leading away from where Jane was found. He followed the prints to a small wooden plank that bridged the lane over a small brook. 
Once he crossed, Haynes noticed a stone in the water that seemed to be smeared with blood, as if the attacker stopped here to wash his hands in the flowing water. The evidence was nothing groundbreaking, and Haynes knew it, but it was a start. The next day, a local gardener stumbled across the next big clue in the case. Around two in the afternoon on April 27th, a horticulturist at a college near the crime scene noticed a roofing hammer curiously stashed on a pile of leaves. There was dried blood across its handle and hair stuck to the sharp edge of the head. The man, like everyone else in town, had heard of the assault from the previous night. He quickly dropped what he was doing to rush the weapon to the local police station. By this point, the chain of command on Jane's case had shifted. The severity of the attack, along with the public attention it had already attracted, prompted the police to assign a high-profile officer, Detective John Mulvaney. He had only been on the case for a matter of hours before the hammer landed in his hands. Luckily for Detective Mulvaney, this was not the typical construction tool. There were peculiar engravings on either side of the hammer, and the company who produced it, J. Sorby, was clearly stamped on its handle. J. Sorby was a small company, and it would be easy to find which nearby shops sold their products. The detective had his first lead. As Mulvaney worked the case, the media jumped on what was now being referred to as the outrage at Kidbrook Lane. But with such a scarce amount of solid evidence available, reporters could only offer up speculation and rumors. Despite these limitations, the story had gone national within a week of the assault. Thousands traveled to the scene of the crime, some from miles away, just to pay tribute to the injured woman in a coma. At this point, the public still didn't know Jane's name, but they knew she was a young member of the working class and that her attack had been brutal. Meanwhile, Mulvaney finally tracked down the one ironmonger in their district who carried J. Sorby products, Samuel Thomas's mechanical tool warehouse. The detective headed to the shop and was greeted by the store owner's wife. Hello, Mrs. Thomas, is it? I'm assuming you're aware of the assault that happened on Kidbrook on April 26th. The what? What happened? A young woman was brutally assaulted on the footpath. We believe that the murder weapon may have been purchased here. A young woman? I just can't believe what this world has come to. If you could help us, that would make a world of difference. Do you remember selling a J. Sorby Number 2 plasterer's hammer at any point during the past week or so? Hmm, I, I don't know. We sell a lot. Poor girl. We sell a lot of hammers. Eventually, Mrs. Thomas was able to provide the officer with a copy of the store's ledger, and it paid off. Mulvaney noticed that this exact hammer was sold on April 22nd, just a week before the attack. Unfortunately, the records didn't include a name. As the detective left the hardware store, William Trott was sitting in his house across town, reading the newspaper. His eyes came across a headline that brought him pause. It read, Mysterious Outrage at Eltham. He, like everyone else, had heard of the horrific assault that had happened a few days earlier, but as he read further into the article, 
A chill went down his spine. There was something very familiar about the victim's description. It said, brown hair, five foot three inches, dressed in a chocolate-ribbed barege dress, black cloth jacket trimmed with black silk braid, crochet work around the neck, black lace bonnet with three red roses in it. William knew he was reading the description of his niece, Jane Clausen. The last time he had seen her, she was wearing that exact same outfit. William and his wife Elizabeth hurried to the police station, who told them that Jane was being held at the hospital. They arrived around 1 a.m. on the night of April 30th, hoping to at least be able to get a few last words in with their niece. But by then, it was too late. Just a few hours earlier, Jane had succumbed to her injuries and passed away. Elizabeth and William Trott broke down in tears, but they would be stunned once more when the doctors discovered another piece of news. At the time of her death, Jane was two months pregnant. Coming up, the London Metropolitan Police go to Edmund Pook for answers. And now back to the story. On April 30th, 1871, 17-year-old Jane Clausen died at a London hospital after a brutal hammer attack. Media outlets across the United Kingdom immediately picked up the story. Many wrote about Jane like she was a martyr of the working class, a servant whose brutal and untimely death was a metaphor for the greater mistreatment of England's blue-collar community. As the story became national news, the local police stepped up their investigation. Detective Mulvaney began moving on just about every lead he could get his hands on. He already had what he believed to be the murder weapon, but he still needed a suspect. And when Mulvaney sat down to speak with Jane's family members, it didn't take long before they gave him a name. There was a boy. The Pook boy. I told her not to. She loved him. What was his name? She never listened. She loved him. Alan or Edward or Edmund Edmund Pook. Charlotte Trott told the detective all about Jane's affair with Pook's son and their plans to run away together. She also mentioned that Jane wasn't the only servant girl that Edmund had taken a liking to. Roughly six weeks before Jane's murder, Edmund was seen with a woman around the same age as Jane named Mary Smith. And age wasn't the only thing they had in common. Mary was another maid of all work, and from the look of it, she and Edmund were far more than just friends. It just so happened that Mary Smith was missing too. As Mulvaney worked through the new information, a more sinister picture of Edmund Pook emerged. While there was no denying he had a soft spot for servant girls, perhaps there was something more insidious at play. Both working-class women he had romantic ties to were either missing or dead. Mulvaney left the Trots home with a plan, but William and Elizabeth Trot had one of their own, defending Jane's reputation in the press. The stories about Jane printed in the various newspapers throughout London range from ill-informed rumors to flat-out slander. 
In some pieces, it was reported that Jane came from a family of sex workers and was one herself. So William Trott headed to the local newspaper to set the record straight. Now I want this on the record. It is false to state that Jane or any of her sisters were ever prostitutes or were ever in a house of ill fame. I wish the published statement to be contradicted in order that the character of our family may not be damaged. Have there been any other developments you can share? I'm happy to set the record straight, but you'll need to give me some meat if you want to turn this into a story. Well, I'm not at liberty to disclose any names, but Jane was seeing a young man before her death. We have letters between the two, and that same young man was seeing another girl the same age as Jane, who was also a servant. She's been missing for the past two weeks. We're thinking there has to be a connection. Hmm. Thank you for your time, Mr. Trot. The next day, the media ran with this new narrative. Jane Clausen was murdered by her lover, who seems to have had a taste for making young servants disappear. None of the articles mentioned Edmund by name, but when Detective Mulvaney saw them, he knew it was only a matter of time before the Pooks realized that their youngest son was the prime suspect. But before they could bring the Pook boy in for questioning, he needed more people who could confirm Jane and Edmund's relationship and the couple's plans to run away together. It only took one conversation with Jane's landlady before he got just that. So, is it correct that you saw Miss Clausen on the evening of her murder? That's correct. I had to run into town to do some errands, and she tagged along. It was strange. That entire week she was in a foul mood, but as if a switch had been flipped, she was giddier than I had ever seen her. What do you suspect motivated the sudden change in mood? Oh, she told me. In fact, it seemed like she physically couldn't contain the information for a second longer. She had plans to meet Edmund Pook at the top of Croom's Hill. Were they going to start life anew or something to that effect? Her aunt told the same story. Yes, that all checks out. She kept insisting that Edmund would make sure she'd never have to work another day in her life. And just like that, she ran off. That was the last time I saw her. That poor darling young girl. Mulvaney now had corroborating testimonies as well as Jane's last known whereabouts. It was finally time to sit down with Edmund Pook himself. The sensitive nature of the situation was not lost on the investigator. Newspapers weren't reporting anything about the Pooks, so there was a chance that the family still wouldn't have their guard up. If he could get Edmund to simply admit to his relationship with Jane, that would be plenty. Unfortunately, his visit to the Pooks could not have gone worse. Detective Mulvaney and Sergeant Griffin strolled into the print shop on the ground floor of the Pook's home. Ebenezer Pook was surprised to see the officers, but welcomed them in. As soon as they sat down, Mulvaney skipped the pleasantries and leapt headfirst into why they were there. Listen, Mr. Pook, we're here about Jane Clausen. Please call me Ebenezer, and Jane, what about her? She's been murdered. I'm sure you've read about it. It's all over the papers. Dear God, that was Jane? I, I, I'm i shocked. I had no idea it was her. I, I, I can't believe it. Indeed. I recognize it to be a sensitive matter, but we believe your son to have played a role. Excuse me. 
Uh, what Mulvaney means to say is we've received some testimonies in our investigation that would lead us to believe that your son, Edmund, and Jane were... How do I put this? On intimate terms, sir. Lovers. And that Jane was not the only servant girl that he was entangled with. There was another, Mary Smith, that your son has been seen out with. She's missing, too. It would appear that your son does what he likes with these lower-class women. You have absolutely no right to speak of my son this way. Within minutes, the two officers had made a powerful enemy. But they kept pressing. The officers asked about Jane's sudden departure from her job at the Pook's home. Ebenezer's answer was direct. Jane was horrible at her job. He said she was dirty and lazy. The family had warned her to get her act together on several occasions until one day she just up and left. As for her pregnancy, Ebenezer claimed that this was the first he was hearing about it. Then Mulvaney asked to look at Edmund's clothing. They wanted to inspect it for any blood stains. Ebenezer begrudgingly led the two officers up to Edmund's room, where they rifled through countless pairs of trousers and waistcoats. But they found nothing. Eventually, the three of them made their way back down to the drawing room, and in a final act of defiance against the officers, Ebenezer called his son into the room to join them. At first glance, the officers did feel a little silly about their accusations. Edmund appeared to be just what his father claimed, an upstanding young man. He was certainly handsome. A quaff of black curls hung charmingly over his face, and he grinned with a toothy smile. He calmly looked both officers in the eyes, then offered each of them a cordial handshake. At least, until Mulvaney told him why they were there. Edmund appeared stunned. He showed real human remorse about Jane's death and without any prompting, told the officers he'd be happy to answer any and all questions. Well, Edmund, we've been told that Miss Clausen was a sweetheart of yours and that you have been corresponding with her. Absolutely not. She was a dirty girl and left our lives weeks ago. But you have corresponded. You've written letters to her. No, sir, I have not. We heard otherwise. You have? Do you have the letter? Is it in my handwriting? That ought to prove it correct. You were the last person seen with her on the night she was attacked. She left her landlord to go and meet you on Tuesday night. Well, I admit, I did see her in town, talking to a young gentleman. Is that so? As Edmund spoke, Mulvaney noticed a number of strange, discolored spots on the legs of Edmund's pants. Mulvaney asked him if those were the pants he was wearing on the night in question. Edmund said they were. Mulvaney asked to see the rest of his clothes from that evening, so Edmund brought him a blue frock coat, a short-crowned hat, and lastly, a shirt. The shirt's right wristband immediately caught Mulvaney's eye. It looked like it was stained with blood. He passed the shirt to Griffin, and Griffin agreed. Edmund paused, baffled, then said that he must have cut his wrist while doing chores. That seemed like a stretch to Detective Mulvaney. In fact, with this bloody garment in his hands, he felt like he had everything he needed to take Edmund Pook into custody. 
The rest of the Pook family protested loudly, but Edmund remained cool and collected. He left with the policeman for Blackheath Road Station. And just like that, Edmund Pook was officially charged with the murder of Jane Clausen. Unfortunately, this was the London Metropolitan Police's first misstep of many in the Jane Clausen case. And despite the countless mistakes to come, Detective Mulvaney's premature arrest of Edmund Pook would prove to be the worst. again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two on Jane's brutal death. For more information on Jane Clausen, amongst the many sources we used, we found Pretty Jane and the Viper of Kidbrook Lane by Paul Thomas Murphy extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Spencer Fox, with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth and River Donahue. Fact-checking by Amber Hurley, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tiana Camacho, Harris Markson, Ellie Schiff, Julian Smith, and Rebecca Thomas. Unsolved Murders stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Hi, listeners, it's Ashley Flowers, and here's a quick reminder to check out my new True Crime Limited series, International Infamy. Every Tuesday, I'm taking you across the globe to look at 15 of the most notorious crimes from 15 different countries. Some stories are sure to shock, some may leave you stumped, but all are quite the trip. Follow my new series, International Infamy with Ashley Flowers. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.